On today's Dead Punnett Society, we're going to be talking all about impeachment. But no, not the way that everybody else is currently talking about impeachment. Not in the way that makes your head feel like it's going to fucking explode. Joining me today on DPS is Christian Parenti. He has a piece out in Jacobin Magazine talking about the lost path of emoluments clause-based impeachment. It could have been a class war-oriented process. Instead, we have a bunch of cold warrior, deep state security loving liberals thumping their chest, claiming that Trump is in cahoots with Putin or whoever to undermine the American state. What a clusterfuck. Will this strategy put the ball back in Donald Trump's court going into the general election in 2020? We're going to talk about all of that and much, much more on today's episode. Stay tuned. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of Dead Punnett Society. I'm your host, as always, Adam Proctor. And joining me today is a return guest of DPS, someone who has written quite a lot and has uh, much to say about the ongoing impeachment uh, faux scandal, uh, faux debacle, faux process. Uh, There's a lot uh, that's being reported in the news right now about Ukraine and Trump's howl of rage in his response to the allegations coming out of the Senate preceding the trial. Uh, but as my guest will outline much more at some point throughout this episode, uh, that's that's a real uh, horse and pony show. The, the, the real meat of this uh, thing uh, was lost long ago. We could have we turned this thing into a class war style investigation of government and our so-called elected representatives and the wealth and privilege that proliferates therein. So join me today to talk much more about this is Christian Parenti. He's written a really important, fantastic, and I think under-remarked uh, under remarked upon article here um, for Jacobin that was given the title Impeachment Without Class Politics and Autopsy. We're going to talk all about it. Christian, how you doing? I'm doing well, Adam. How are you? Doing just fine. I mean, it's... Uh, Oh, and only because I should say I'm doing well only because I'm ignoring the news today and this week. Yeah, me too. You know, you've written a really great article here talking about what could have happened if we had a class struggle, class oriented politics surrounding these impeachment proceedings. Uh, but before we get to that, let's talk about what has happened. Give us kind of a, a brief summary of of the process so far. People will know that this really has circulated around yeah. Ukraine and so-called misdealings of with, uh, you know, various uh, well, right. So the House has impeached the president, has voted to impeach the president. And there are two articles of impeachment and they have been sent to the Senate and the Senate will now have a trial. And the details of how that will happen remain unclear. And I haven't followed it that closely. But, you know, I mean, my take on the impeachment is essentially that it was high risk. To begin with, I mean, the, the Senate made very clear, the Senate, you know, dominated by Republicans, it made clear that it was not going to convict Trump no matter what. So that makes any kind of impeachment probably a bad idea. And, you know, Bernie Sanders, you know, because it's one of these touchstone issues for a lot of Democratic Party voters, he, he couldn't be too sophisticated about the impeachment and be against it. So he had to sort of support it. But he did make several critical comments, warning, saying, well, I'm, you know, I'm worried that like the impeachment will just turn into Trump, 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 you know, i.e. that it will block out all other issues. And, and indeed, that's part of what it did. And I think also, I mean, in my moments of like real cynicism, I have no proof for this, um, other than the fact that Nancy Pelosi is very, very good at her job and is really impressive. But I think even her whole her negotiations with Mitch McConnell about what the rules would be in the Senate trial. And she she delayed releasing or forwarding the two articles of impeachment for, I think it was about two weeks, maybe longer. And, you know, she got nothing because there's no grounds. There's nothing, there's nothing in it for McConnell to give anything to her. You know, they don't, they don't care whether they get the impeachment articles or not. And they, they knew that she had to forward them. 
But, you know, what I think is like, no, she's just buying time. She's just stalling for two weeks to then hand it off to the Senate so that they can crowd out Iowa. This is about getting Bernie Sanders off the road and into the Senate where he has to listen to this nonsense about Ukraine. And, he, you know, and the whole parameters of the debate are about, you know, how much how, how concerned are you about American national security? You know, who can outperform themselves in their patriotic veneration of of the deep state? That's essentially the subtext of the impeachment as it's it's um, framed, because it's all around this question of whether or not Trump withheld aid to the Ukraine government because he wanted the Ukraine government to announce that they were going to investigate Hunter Biden's connections with Burmissa, the biggest uh, company, gas company in Ukraine. And obviously, this is serious corruption. And this is something I didn't actually put into the piece because it's, you know, it's a short piece. I didn't want to go on and on about it. But and it's also because it's sort of, you know, it's just a hunch. You can't prove it. But it's interesting that Nancy Pelosi opposes impeachment rationally, I think, to some extent, for a long time. And impeachment is, is, is being pushed for by sort of progressives, but, you know, just sort of marginal members of the House. And I think a lot of members of the House were responding to their their base, their voters, right? Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you know, has come out for impeachment and been vocal advocate of impeachment. But to her credit, she has said that, you know, early on she was pushing emoluments, emoluments, right? So this is this is the issue that this article in Jacobin is about, is like the disappearance of the emoluments clause violations. So impeachment was a bad idea because the Senate was never going to convict, but there is a way that it could have served as a kind of massive public education, as a spectacle of class politics. And that would have been if the central issues had been around the emolument clause violations. And there's two emolument clauses in the Constitution. One, that, that the foreign emoluments clause that says the president can't accept gifts from foreign princes and states and then that government officials can't accept titles from foreign states. And then the second domestic emolument clause violation says that the president's remuneration shall be limited to his president or thus far his uh, presidential salary only. So the presidents are not allowed to get anything, other, any other income other than their salary. And their salary is set for the entire four years uh, that they are president. They're not allowed to bid up their salary in the middle of their presidency. So that's, that's the domestic emoluments clause violation. So the charge is that Trump violates particularly the domestic emoluments clause violation by still owning his hotels and that corporations, many of them domestic, uh, there's, there's this kind of this impulse in the, the language of the pundit class to unconsciously to almost to defend the domestic capitalist class by constantly referring to foreign, oh, foreign firms, foreign powers, but actually like a lot of American domestic firms seem to be currying favor with Trump by booking huge blocks of rooms in his hotels. And, uh, there, you know, the research on this has been done by, like Public Citizen and um, this independent journalist, uh, Iverson, Everson, I don't actually know how you pronounce his name. That's my dyslexia. Zach, Zach Everson, I am actually very dyslexic. Zach Everson, you know, so there's been this like really um, seat of the pants research about, well, what, what kind of firms are, are, are booking rooms at Trump properties? So Zach Iverson, his methodology was he would just go every now and then and, and hang out at the Trump Hotel and find out who was passing through and then search the social media accounts of company executives who would never speak to a journalist but would like then brag on social media about what they're doing at these Trump properties. And through this kind of really low-tech, unempowered research, like Iverson found that 51 U.S. businesses or business groups had seemed to be currying favor. There's evidence that Facebook might be one of them. Um, uh, Congressman, Congresswoman Dean from Pennsylvania asked Zuckerberg uh, about this. And, um, you know, we don't know the answer to her, her question is, is not apparent. Um, Sprint and T-Mobile were, you know, basically um, camped out at the Trump Hotel DC 
when they were negotiating their merger, which they also lobbied the Trump administration for, and that merger was approved. I mean, this is like naked corruption, right? So you think like, well, what happened to all this? I mean, it goes on the payday lenders association. I mean, like, you know, on and on and on the mining executives, energy companies, all these companies that have business before the government before the executive branch have been booking large chunks of rooms in his properties. It smacks of domestic emolument clause violations. If you don't want to get regulated by the Trump executive, just book up a bunch of rooms in his hotels. It's genius. Yeah. I mean, this is, yeah, this is bonkers. So that, we've talked about emoluments for my, my, my domestic and my foreign audience. People might be thinking, you know, overseas or elsewhere, like what the fuck is emoluments? But, uh, this, this, this has disappeared. This language about emoluments, which we saw in the kind of liberal commentary at the liberal chattering classes leading up to the election and after the election, especially the emoluments, 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 hell, half the American population learned what emoluments are in those, in those heady days of, you know, corruption, but we don't hear that word anymore. What happened to it? So what happened was that, uh, and I'll tell you what's in the article and then I'll, then I'll kind of, um, add that, um, what happened was that Nancy Pelosi, she's opposed to emoluments. And then over the summer of 2019, it comes out that Trump has pressured Ukraine and withheld aid. And then, uh, at this point, you know, 200 or so members of the House of Representatives have signed on to lawsuits around emoluments. There are more and more representatives are, are pushing for uh, impeachment. And then this news about Ukraine breaks and these seven former intelligence officers turned, um, I think are all pretty much freshman Democrats, signed this open letter saying this is – the red line, we serve, we swore to serve, blah, 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 blah. Trump is a, a traitor, essentially. And at that point, then Nancy Pelosi is kind of, you know, forced to act, et cetera, et cetera. She takes control of the process because she runs the Democratic caucus in the House and they are, they, you know, they're, they're the controlling party. She takes control of this and hands it off to the, uh, Intelligence Committee and then Judiciary, and they process the uh, this, and uh, from from this process comes the two emolument, I mean the, the two articles of impeachment, and lost in that process is questions of emolument. So basically, once it becomes a formal process, Nancy Pelosi steps in and just takes charge, and the emoluments disappear, and. Um, when Jamie Raskin, who's not a radical at all, uh, he's a liberal. When Jamie Raskin, who's, who's a, a constitutional law professor for many years, and um, he is a uh, fresh person representative from Maryland, and he's on the Judiciary Committee. And, and he was always pushing for emoluments. And interestingly, he pushes for emoluments sort of a, a, in a kind of technocratic fashion. It's just like because it's you know, this is a violation. This is like as good a point as any other uh, to kind of enter this question of, of Trump's legitimacy. And he, when uh, Trump openly, when Trump openly uh, invited the G7 to meet at his Durrell, Florida estate, Raskin started pushing for investigation of this and getting people to sign on. And Pelosi, uh, from what I'm told, told him to chill out. So she, she did not want these emolument clause issues coming up. Now, why? Because they don't want to talk about corporate power, period. You know, if you get into, I mean, if there had been, um, investing, I mean, if, if the emolument clause violations had been made part of the impeachments, that would mean that there would be subpoena power. And, you know, when the house subpoenaed members of the Trump administration, they you know, usually declined. Uh, but it would be much harder for an executive at Facebook or some sort of, you know, second tier energy company to refuse a congressional subpoena. So there could have been really um, a whole different level of investigation brought to bear on these questions had Congress taken it up as part of the impeachment process. Right. Now, yeah. so, so it that's seems like just to jump in, it seems like they knifed Biden. 
they chose to knife Biden rather than uh, risking their their corporate you know their corporate money base, didn't they? Because who, you know who, it seems like a it seems who like chose to knife him. Uh, the, the Democrats. Yeah, I mean, I, to me, it seems like you know there there was the odd, there was an obvious risk here of taking the Ukraine, making the Ukraine issue the central matter in this impeachment process. Yeah, there was a real risk there. If anybody who understands kind of political blowback and the back and forth that's inevitably going to you know sort of come out of this, and I think I, I believe uh, Samuel Moyne wrote about this a little bit about the risk as if if Biden you know uh, Biden was the, the clear front runner at the time that. Uh, he wrote this piece. So that's that's less the case these days. But uh, it's a real disaster uh, that essentially the the Republicans are going to put Hunter Biden and Joe Biden on trial in this process. And uh, yes, and it seems it, the Democrats would rather knife Biden than risk their corporate money base. I'm not sure whether they're um, knifing Biden or running to his defense, because uh, you know. Trump was trying to get the Ukraine to investigate Biden, and he did withhold the aid. And uh, Hunter Biden is guilty. I mean, Hunter Biden, in case any of your listeners are unclear, is a crackhead. You know, he has like, and he, you know, he has this wild personal life. And, you know, um, some of my best friends live crazy chaotic lives, so nothing against that. But when you're the vice president's son, and then you get a job for $50,000 a month, this all becomes relevant because the guy blows through money. I mean, this is on the record. Hunter Biden, like rents multiple hotel rooms in a night, uh, tons of prostitutes, tons of drugs. He just blew through the money. He's had like four different marriages, right? I mean, he's a total mess. That matters because it's like, why, why would he be vulnerable? That's why he'd be vulnerable because he's out of control. He is, he's a, a Coke fiend. So he went, to work in this industry he knows nothing at all about uh you know and it's so obvious that it was like Burmissa, um you know trying to buy protection now whether or not it worked that's a different question but they were trying to do that so i think that you know trump was preparing to come with that if biden got the nomination and he may he may still yet and i so i i kind of think i don't know though mm-hmm. for sure i kind of think that um the democrats were rallying to joe's defense and they were trying to lay down a kind of, uh, kind of, you know, commentary carpet bombing of this is disproven. I mean, it was kind of incredible the way NPR and the New York Times, uh, Washington Post were just compulsively uh, always saying that that the there was no proof whatsoever against Hunter Biden, <laughs> yeah. and that's just on the yeah. face of it not true. There, there's no conclusive proof that he was, you know, uh, you know that there was quid pro quo that he was then talking to his father saying, "Hey, will you go easy on Bermissa? Will you help Bermissa?" Um, but there's certainly lots and lots of circumstantial evidence. Say there's no evidence, there's no proof. No, no, it might not be conclusive, but there's obviously tons of evidence that this guy would be the kind of person who would be up to no good. Yeah. He's, and, he's a messy bastard and the, the record is pretty clear on that. So no, that's, that's interesting. So there, you think they're trying to make a preemptive case to yeah, try to turn the, like, inter- I dismiss, see. Yeah. I see. But, but I mean, I, I think it I could think, backfire. I think because you're who's right. Gonna get the, doomed. It's doomed. Because who's going to get the last word here, right? That's the question. Yeah. Are the Democrats so, going to get the last word to try to uh, make the case against Trump and, and pull the dogs off of, of Biden or is Trump as the executive, the, you know, the, the commander in chief to have the opportunity to get the last word there. I think that's a that's a tough wager if you're Nancy Pelosi. I don't know that I would have gone the route that she did. Um, I think this is going to blow back on Joe Biden and, and uh, his prospects quite badly. And I, I'd, I'd hate to see a Biden nomination um, if that were the case. Anyway, a um, little bit of a digression. One thing that you raised yeah, in your all, piece, but, but but it's all it's all part of trying to understand yeah. what what is going on with this. I mean, we can nail we can nail this down to one sentence from your piece that, that Nancy Pelosi, House Leader, Speaker, Leader of the uh, Democratic Caucus, most powerful Democrat, um, very savvy, smooth operator, whatever you think of her, is at the time of 2016 was worth 58 million dollars, and at one time she was worth over 100 million dollars. These people in, in in the House and the Senate, especially the Senate, are filthy fucking rich. Yeah, and they have a vested interest in maintaining uh, not only their own power but also that flow of money coming from the corporate sector into the in, into the Democratic Party uh, coffers. Mm-hmm. Uh, what would emoly- What kind of political climate would an emoluments trial have led to? Yeah, well, um, you know, it would have it would have opened the door for Republicans to to say, well, let's 
you know, this door swings both ways. Let's look at, at, uh, you know, what you guys do. And they don't want to do that. And, um, you know, one, one sort of paraphrase from an off the record conversation with a, a representative, the representative said that, yeah, th- that would have, you know, generally that was too close to home. And there were a lot of Democrats in, in the House of Representatives who did not want to get into those questions about where, you know, where politicians get their money from, how much money they have, what their relationship is to the rich and to these corporations. And this whole process is just something that they, a lot of them didn't want to get into. So that's an important thing. It's not like Nancy Pelosi was up against this mob of radicals demanding emoluments. And then she like gangster style eviscerates the whole process when she takes charge of it. I mean, it was, I mean, she was pushing on an open door. A lot of representatives were just not interested in this. And it was understood that you don't want to go there. Um, And the, the, the euphemism I heard used a lot in talking to people was that it was like, uh, there was worry about moderates in swing states, meaning like that just, you know, that the right wing of the party is not interested in those questions. So never mind it. Never mind that uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, like that, that's her version of impeachment. Yeah. Forget it. Now, let me ask you, is she still pushing on that uh, emoluments issue? Is this coming up in her, no, in no, her they've discussions? Moved they've moved on. Okay. You she's know, been effectively silenced. Yeah. Or like she's, at least she's determined that it's not worth it. She understands that uh, p- people's outrage at Trump probably in her district, um, you know, outweighs any kind of intra democratic party battles that she's willing to fight right now. And that's smart. You know, I'm not going to, I, I go easy on, uh, Ocasio Cortez because I, I see her as playing a, a long game and I think she's a pretty savvy and principled operator. Um, doesn't always take the stances that I'd like her to take, but you know, I'm just, a, I'm just a pundit and she's a fucking elected representative. So, yeah, I think she's, I think she's very, very smart. And, uh, yeah, and I think you're, you're, yeah, long game is correct. Um, and uh, I mean, I think that part of the the reason, like from the left, a reason to oppose impeachments is be, impeachments is because it becomes a news blackout on Bernie. And so that might have been another, you know, element in Pelosi finally capitulating. She's like, oh, we can, you know, I can do this. I can, I can main, I can maintain control of my caucus. All these these representatives, many of them not even knowing why, sort of pushing for impeachment because their voters want impeachment because they're just so outraged by Trump. And so she's like, I can take charge of this, kill the emoluments, you know, uh, wrap ourselves in the flag and run the clock out on Bernie. We can news blackout Bernie in the fall. And then we can, in the run up to, uh, to Iowa, drag him off the field and force him to be in the Senate discussing questions of national security, right? And that's that's the timing that's now set up. And I mean, I'm not suggesting there's some sort of open collaboration between Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi. I'm, I'm, I'm suggesting that there's a kind of class logic at work here that they both share. And so similarly, Mitch McConnell, I think, and the Republicans are fine with that. They don't want to run against Bernie Sanders. They want to run against Joe Biden. Yeah. I think Trump has made that very clear. He, he on the other hand, not a very savvy operator and has been tweeting like mad uh, about Bernie. Uh, and he's, his aides are reporting, you know, both um, behind the cover of, of various journalists that are, you know, squawking about this and, and elsewhere out in the open that he doesn't want to he doesn't want to run against uh, Sanders. Sanders is a dangerous guy for his political agenda. He can't make the same kind of case about, you know, his same kind of like right wing populist case about jobs and all the rest of it, NAFTA and trade and better deals. Um, and he can't and he can't attack and mock Bernie as well. He can't attack Bernie as corrupt. I mean, he can, but it's just going to fall flat. We're seeing that now. We're like, he's a millionaire. It's like, yeah, he made $700,000 on his book, you know, and he bought like a, you know, he bought a house. He's got like, I don't know what it was, like eight grandchildren. One of his, his eldest son's um, wife just died. You know, he's got like tons of grandkids. So he, he bought like a, you know, family vacation home on Lake Champlain. Like uh, he's hardly yeah. a plutocrat. Yeah. You don't want him to be a millionaire. Stop buying his book. I bought his book. I guess it's partially my fault. You know, what are you going to do? Pardon the interruption, everybody, but this is the part of the program where I ask you to become one of these several hundred some odd patrons of Dead Punnett Society and support this here very broadcast with your dollars or your British pounds 
or your whatever the hell it is that you get your labor remunerated in. And we need your support in order to keep this thing going. So head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and smash that subscribe button. You'll get access to our almost weekly b-sides are going to be coming out for the remainder of 2020 we are going back to the long form audio format and i am excited to bring you that cutting edge medium rare content that you've grown to love so much from dps there's going to be a lot more of that coming in addition if you're not following us on twitter find us at dead pundits dead pundits plural Give us a search on Facebook as well. We've got a Facebook page. I'd like to stay in touch with you all, so follow us on social media. And I'm sure that many of you out there have friends, comrades, loved ones, perhaps even, who have never heard of Dead Punnett Society, and they might even like it. Moreover, they probably need it in today's era of media disinformation and liberal brain worms. So even if you can't become a patron today, I ask you to share this episode blasted out on your social networks. We've got an uphill battle coming ahead of us here on the socialist and progressive left over the next year, and we need a thriving, independent, socialist media ecosystem in order to face down those challenges. I am sensing a little bit of burnout when it comes to podcast consumption. I'm sensing that a lot of people are logging off and signing out of social media online spaces, which is great, but it would be a tragedy if this budding socialist independent media ecosystem that we are developing begins to crash and burn. If it goes the way of the blog circa 2012, I think we're in trouble. That is unless it gets replaced with something better. Anyway, continue supporting DPS and projects like it. We've got to build this thing. Thanks so much for your support. Now back to the interview with Christian Parenti. Yeah. But so, I mean, they'll, they'll try, but like, it just doesn't work compared to say, uh, the records of people like Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden. It's not going to stick. So let's talk a little bit about what this does for the Democratic Party, because whether we like it or not, I think we progressive, we socialists who are tied to this kind of project of prying open the Democratic Party over the long run and producing something more progressive, perhaps a, 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 an actual labor party in the United States like was you know tried – in, in the 1990s, perhaps uh, some other kind of breakaway. We may see a, an overall political realignment across both parties. Uh, who knows? But for those of us who have a vested interest in that long-term project, the fate of the Democratic Party is is important in, in the interim, right? And and what what is this doing? What is this focus on corruption and Ukraine? What do you think that's doing to the Democratic Party's um, you know, perception, reception among among just kind of normies, just the American public who just kind of you know, well, yeah, I the think headlines it, a couple times. I mean, a week. it um, it makes the you know, it's uh, it seems like and it, you know, that it's irrelevant. You know, I mean, what I said at the end of the article is like you know, you get this whole thing about a country that you know, very few people know where it is or know anything about it or care anything about it. You know, so uh, yeah, it becomes a display of irrelevance and the democrats end up sounding you know just like republicans each of them venerating um the national security state so it's it's an ideological um you know sandbagging of of the whole national discourse i mean part of what sanders and ocasio-cortez and this kind of like you know growing ecology of kind of left uh media is doing is forcing conversations, national conversations that hadn't been had for a long time about the, the 1% who's going to pay the bills, um, et cetera, et cetera. And so this version of impeachment is a way of crowding all of that out. And that's, those are the issues that Bernie Sanders runs on. That's why he's, uh, been rising in the polls. That's, you know, that's why he became the phenomenon he is. I mean, when he first, you know, I'm from Vermont originally, and it's like, you know, I've known Bernie, and not personally, I met him many years ago once, but I mean, I've, you know, been following Bernie for a long, long time. When he first started running, I was like, this is crazy. This isn't going to go anywhere. But look, I mean, this is incredible. Yeah. So I think, you know, anything is possible. It was totally impossible for Donald Trump to become president, yet he became president. So uh, old systems of, of control and ideological management are falling apart before our eyes and the kind of the democratic party consultant class, the pundit class are 
mainstream pundit class are all, you know, late to pick up on this. And also, I think, just don't want to highlight it for fear of fueling it because they're, you know, the pundit class are part and parcel of this whole arrangement. But indeed, uh, all bets are off. So, yeah, yeah. Two, th- two more topics here. Let's uh, First of all, what do you think Bernie Sanders' approach is going to be to this thing overall? He's gotten a number of – all of the most progressive members of the progressive uh, the House Progressive Caucus have now officially uh, endorsed Sanders. Uh, Pramila Jayapal endorsed this past week. Uh, obviously, Ro Khan is on staff. The, the members of the squad, the ones that count anyway, <laughs> minus Presley, I, uh, Representative Ayanna Presley, have all endorsed, of course – um, other smaller names as well. They have pledged both, you know, online that they will. They have Bernie's back when he has to go back to D.C. To, for these ridiculous Senate trials, uh, impeachment trials. Uh, so they will be hot on the campaign trail in these early primary caucus states. They claim they've got his back. But what do you think is going to be the overall tactic, or what should be the overall tact of the campaign in the wake of these impeachments, which are impeachment hearings, which will definitely be occupying. Uh, you know, a lot of real estate in, in the news media cycle for the next couple of weeks, but it's all likely to fizzle pretty soon. What what's who's going to be left standing and what are we going to be looking at once it's all settles? Well, I don't know. Yeah. But um, I mean, I think that Bernie's, you know, strength has been in organizing people and the media is not friendly to Bernie and they never have been. And, um, you know, uh, the 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 polls immediately, you know, most recent polls, show that Elizabeth Warren's uh, what I think is just absolutely mendacious um, and flat-footed attack on Bernie right before the debates and then in the off mic, you know, section of the debate. I mean, that, that stuff did not work for Warren. So uh, Bernie Sanders continues to grow in popularity despite lots of negative press. And it has to do with the fact that people resonate with his message and they then deliver the, you know, by organizing, going out there and, and, you know, donating money. He raised, you know, $1.7 million in the debate. I guess that's one of their biggest hauls. It's like, you know, people are not buying all of these smears and it's pissing off the Bernie base even more. And people are giving, they're digging deeper, they're headed to Iowa, all this kind of stuff. So he's ahead in, he's ahead in New Hampshire I think he'll win New Hampshire. I mean, this is not my, you know, this is not my, uh, my bailiwick, my lane or whatever political punditry, but you're asking. So I'll, I'll let you know. But I mean, I think he's cause, just because he's as anybody else. We all know that the, the so-called experts here are, are the worst among us. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's ahead in the polls in New Hampshire. The difference between Corbin and Sanders was that, you know, Corbin was never polling well and yet, yet lefties were like, he can do it anyway, but you know, Sanders is polling well and the trend line is up. So he's ahead in New Hampshire. You know, at this point, it looks like, you know, Biden's probably going to get Iowa, but maybe not because there's a lot of Sanders people on the ground. But yeah, the the Senate trial will hurt. My fear is it's going to hurt Bernie in Iowa. But maybe maybe we can make up for it with everybody getting out there because that probably does matter more is to like just face to face interactions at the doors and on the phone and yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah, there's some uh, friends of the show, uh, good comrades from North uh, New York City and Philadelphia DSA chapters who have all gone out to Iowa this week to knock on doors and take part in some of those operations. I've got friends of the show and people doing that across the country. So shout outs to uh, shouts out to those people and That's, fighting the yeah. good fight, knocking the doors in New Hampshire, freezing their ass off. Um, it's really important work right now. Um, mm-hmm. let's talk to, let's talk. Cause I, you're, I think you're right though. Just They're the real heroes. On. They're the real heroes because I mean, that's, that's the real underreported underreported uh, story here. Uh, it's completely absent from the mainstream cover- coverage of this stuff. Uh, we've got a small army out there and, uh, you know, they're doing God's work as far as I'm concerned, because I'm sitting here in my uh, nice uh, temperature controlled office talking to you. So <laughs> uh, yeah. good on them. If you're out there and you're listening, um, knocking on doors and listening to DPS, keep doing your thing. Um, Let's talk a little bit about Trump's response to the charges as, as any trial you know, goes. The, the accused has the right to face their accuser and, of course, respond to the accusations. And so the, the way this plays out is that uh, the executive, Trump in this case, is given an opportunity to make a formal uh, – file a formal brief, a formal response. Uh, much uh, has been reported today and yesterday, today, especially today being uh, Monday. This is going to come out in a few days uh, from now, but that Trump's response, there's no legalism, no argumentation in there whatsoever. 
no facing down the actual charges and offering counter evidence or or what have you. It was it was uh, as some have called it um, a howl of rage. He was completely throwing the entire process in the question, uh, allegedly, you know, we're trying to attempting to refute the Constitution, according to these kind of proceduralist fetishists uh, in the liberal pundit class. Um, what do you think Trump's strategy is here? I think it's an actually a quite savvy one. He doesn't have to win impeachment. He has to win the American people. And if he can, if he, yeah. if he can, if he can convince the American people that he's being picked on here, that these ridiculous hyper political Democrats are playing politics here rather than, you know, uh, giving a shit about the American people that he can pull this thing off. And I think he's right. What do you think? Yeah, I would agree with that. Absolutely. Uh, he's got the votes. The Republicans are not going to impeach him. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's their show. He doesn't have to put up a defense. He just has to put out messaging. And so he's messaging, you know, and he's using this to beat up on Democrats, just as you said. And, um, yeah, I mean, this is, this is his, he's been, this has been his strategy all the way along, right? It's just like reality television as politics and in a low, you know, Fran Fox Piven would say this years ago. She'd be like, yeah, we're all low information voters. And if you think about it, it's like, yeah, if you're honest, it's like, I'm a university professor, you know? And it's like, I mean, honestly, like if I think about what I would like to know about the political process and system in this country, you know, it's, it's not, it's not what it should be. And so, you know, the entire country is like, you know, not following all the like ins and outs of this boring technical thing. What they hear are the broad takeaways and, and, Trump's out there swinging hard, calling Democrats a bunch of frauds. And, you know, they are a bunch of frauds. So, you know, it, it resonates as true. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. So we'll see. There's a, there's a deep, there's a deep, deep kind of spiritual malaise or crisis as, you know, uh, Marianne Williams put it, what a dark psychic forces, you know, joking aside, but there is, yeah. I mean, there is like, people are, people are pissed off in this country and they're really worried. And it is the accumulated experience of neoliberalism. It's like the intergenerational harm now of, of neoliberalism, the opioid crisis, um, you know, just the, the fact that we're in this longest ever recovery and, you know, the, the quality I mean, wages are just going up a little bit. But, you know, the quality of work for most working people is awful. I can't get full time to get benefits under constant surveillance from technology. I mean, just like the conditions of the working class, the majority of people in this country have been so severely degraded and people hate it. And and they hate the secondary harms like, you know, uh, addiction that come along with this. And um, they are not as charitable towards the pundits and the politicians who tell them that everything has to be the way that it's always been. Yeah. Yeah. We're seeing an, a kind of an anti-authoritarian anti, you know, um, some people have called this an anti-political moment, a moment of anti-politics. And uh, Trump has been riding that wave. And it seems to me it's no brainer here that the only person who can face that down from our side is a Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Um, let's see if, let's see if he gets the chance. Uh, who's to say what will happen. So it's been a real fun chat. Before I let you go, you've got a really interesting book coming out. Um, give us a little, give us a little spiel on it real fast. Uh, it's called, okay. it's about radical Hamilton. Hamilton, of course, being the guy who has captured the liberal imagination <laughs> uh, for some time through this ridiculous musical. Um, I take this as a, as I take this book as a, something of a, a challenge from the left. Maybe you might pique some of these people's interest and yeah. uh, depoison their brains. Uh, what's this book all about? So the book is about it, it kind of developed by mistake. Uh, it, it is about the developmentalist state that is at the heart of capitalist development within American history. And more broadly, the argument is that this is really, you know, fundamental to the historical world, historical development of capitalism as a system is the role of developmentalist states. And you can see that very clearly in U.S. economic history. But this is something that is not widely explored in economics or in history or in economic history such as it is. And um, so the book is about Hamilton's experiential education during the war and then during the critical period in the 1780s when the U.S. economy we now know goes into probably the worst downturn ever, you know, as bad as 
the Great Depression, very different kind of economy, but like really, really major collapse in prices, deflation, mass unemployment, because the war, the Revolutionary War did have a kind of stimulating effect, stimulus effect. You, know, you got three armies that are being supplied and, and, um, and then when all that stops, boom. Uh, and there's all this kind of centrifugal kind of political forces, violence of, of various types on the frontier against Maroons, inter-white settler violence against each other over like competing land claims. Things are spinning out of control and Hamilton realizes the only way that we can maintain sovereignty and create a, um, you know, a, a fully functional sovereign state is if we have a plan to industrialize and they don't use the word industrialized, but if we have a, p a plan to use state power and subsidy and ownership uh, and purchasing and, and regulation to drive an economic transformation away from agricultural domination towards a manufacturing economy, which would increase productivity and increase the overall wealth that the society could produce and would therefore allow the creation of what's known as a fiscal military state, a state that can borrow tax pay off its its debts go into debt and um fund massive economic transformation and then in the process build an administration and also a military force to defend itself i mean it's not you know the us it was not a progressive project but the point is that it was a successful project and not all states have been so successful and um and not all efforts to to transform economies have been so successful. And we actually, you know, face something that's a little similar around climate change, which is we need to drive an economic transformation. And so part of what I'm saying is that we could do worse than actually understanding how we industrialized the first time. And I'm trying to displace entrepreneurs and private initiative and recenter the story on government planning and um subsidy and the power of the state as an economic actor. And this is denied. I mean, so Hamilton writes the report on manufacturers, which is name checked. This is how the book developed. I was, I kept seeing this. I saw the, I read the Ron Chernow biography just for fun. And I saw a reference. Oh, that sounds like, it sounds like an interesting document. It sounds like very statist documents about planning, you know, and then just sort of was like looking for what other people had said about it. And one thing became clear is that a lot of these scholars weren't even reading the document and um, getting things wrong about it. So at first, the book was going to be a republishing of the, the republication of the report on manufacturers with an introduction, but then the introduction grew into a huge book. So you can look up the report on manufacturers yourself. But the report on manufacturers is this extremely detailed plan to basically use government power to drive uh, an industrialization process. And, and you know, by and large, we're, we're in denial as a society. We're in denial about that, about the centrality of the public sector to the existence of the private sector. Right. No doubt. And I think, you know, before anybody sort of says, you know, well, you know, things are different now. The, the odds are stacked against us in developing a, certain, a, a similar kind of situation. I think that they should read, they should fucking read your book. Maybe the turnout would be a nice uh, way to start until your book's available later this summer. But to, to think about the, the, the way that the elites in this country were imagining the American state following the Revolutionary War, a war against monarchy and centralized authority, right? To think mm. that a guy like Hamilton can come in and centralize the state in this way and, and, and enable us to, to, you know, to, to borrow money, which would potentially lead to what? Taxation? You know, mm -hmm, which is yeah. they just went to war and fought and died against this very principle. So the fact that they were able to, that they were able to kind of flip the script so quickly for for I think probably the greater good for sure to face down the challenges and the, and the real crises that they faced in that moment, um, it's instructive well, as hell. Yeah, yeah. I mean, part of what happens is, I mean, I I depend on on Carl Polanyi in the framing of this book, and I mentioned him only briefly in the beginning. But you know, he lays out in the Great Transformation this struggle like of laissez-faire ideology, constantly pushing from from you know the the seventeen. 70s, 80s on, with the beginning of industrialization, there's this constant push of laissez-faire ideology, and it inevitably wins, and then a crisis ensues because there has been too much deregulation, and then the state comes back, is forced to come back and reorganize things. And so his famous line is that laissez-faire was planned, planning is spontaneous, because there's this kind of constant pattern of, of 
fiscal and the economic and sometimes military crisis that capitalism produces and that laissez-faire free market ideology produces through its legislative victories. So you saw that with the 2008 crash, right? I mean, the laissez-faire ideology, you know, coming out of the neoliberal revolution or neoliberal turn, right, is pushing for 20 or more years to undo Glass-Steagall. Clinton does that. And lo and behold, in 2008, there is the worst financial crisis in world history. It's prevented from becoming the worst economic, general economic crisis in world history because the government of George Bush, full of ardent free market economists, throw their ideology out the window and do a policy 180 turn and basically subsidize, you know, mop up at, with the public sector power the risk, uh, semi-nationalize the banks and, um, you know, save the day and, and then throw enormous amounts of money in terms of stimulus and also uh, really, really massive debt spending. And I mean, this was done by people who spent their lives saying, oh, you have to actually get the government out of, of the economy to achieve economic equilibrium you know, you need deregulation, privatization, and a removal of the state. And then their greatest contribution is actually um, something that's not progressive, but very, very, very statist. So, you know, this is this is part of how the developmentalist state continues its march through history, is that it's summoned back at a moment of crisis. And so what happens is that Hamiltonian ideas are actually defeated in the so-called revolution of 1800 when Jefferson comes in mm -hmm. and Jefferson starts cutting budgets. He eliminates all internal taxes, which are often cast as taxes on the poor because they tax consumption. Well, that's true. They did that, but they also taxed slaves and they taxed houses and they taxed carriages. So there was a, you know, there were, um, more progressive features to these inland taxes. There was no income tax, uh, these in internal taxes, as they were known, they had actually a more progressive side that's often left out. Anyway, he gets rid of all of these, cuts the the Navy down to nothing, and I feel kind of weird, like you know, advocating for the, the U.S. Navy. But but I'm well, I'm, I'm looking that, at that's this, the same Navy that defeated objective. the Confederacy. So we can we can we can uh, we can be happy right. about that, right? And and also we just have to separate like means and ends to some extent. Like if you want yeah. your organization to function, it has to be well organized. Now, what's it going to do? That's that's an, also an even more important question, but it's a separate question at a certain level. So long story short, Jefferson's um, small government policies lead to the War of 1812. He's in there for eight years, and then Madison is in there. And um, the British start seizing American sailors and, um, you know, really hampering American access to the sea. And this leads to the War of 1812, for which the U.S. is disastrously prepared. Uh, the British burn Washington, D.C. to the ground. They burn the White House. They burn the Capitol building, right? And then it's in response to that crisis that these small government Jeffersonians actually are forced to um, reconstitute the, the central bank and, um, you know, move in an ideologically opposite direction, i.e. use government power uh, rather than kind of diminish government power. So that pattern of, of uh, the developmental state being forced by circumstances back into the flow of history is crucial for understanding this. Yeah. Yeah. This is fascinating stuff. I can't wait till this book comes out. I'll have you back on the show for sure to talk about this and definitely in context of your earlier work. Uh, in one of your uh, recent books, Tropic of Chaos, talks about climate change and new geographies of violence that result from from those processes that are already underway. Cataclysmic climate change being something that is already, always already happening in certain places. Um, and uh, so, yeah, if we're going to stave this thing off, uh, stave off the worst effects of this, we're going to need to have a very strong developmental state. No question. Uh, of, of what kind? That's an open question. There are a lot of live and important debates that are happening on the left right now about what that might look like. And I'm going to be having some people on the show very soon to talk about that for the guests. Uh, just kind of wet your whistles, get you excited about that. So looking forward to have you back on, everybody. Look out for that book this summer. It's called Radical Hamilton. Uh, again, this piece that we talked about will be linked in the show notes. It's called Impeachment Without Class Politics and Autopsy. I think people should be talking about this a lot 
more. I think it's going to impact the trajectory of you know democratic socialist politics on the American scene for a long time. Well, whatever happens from this impeachment, it's not going to go well for the Democrats. And I think that no. our folks- and, and just and, to be- Yeah, go ahead. J- if I could just interject for a second, just to be clear, I am not advocating like that, oh, we have to recuperate impeachment and do it correctly. No, 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 no. This was just, this is an autopsy. Patient's dead. It's like, you know, this is not, we do not want to be- getting caught in impeachment and trying to infuse it with a kind of less content it can't have at this point. I was just illustrating what could have happened and trying to get people to think about sort of how the Democrats willingly and deliberately killed a potentially destabilizing um, spectacle of uh, class politics. Yeah, no, that's an important corrective. I think maybe, you know, in that in that sense, this is what the, uh, you know, the old communists used to call it. This, this has an agitational uh, function. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, and, and, you know, part of what um, I thought of in this regard were the Kerry hearings, right? The Iran-Contra hearings. I mean, that, that was, that was kind of amazing that that even happened. The, you know, uh, the U S government, you know, I mean, Congress investigating drug dealing by the CIA and this being broadcast on like yeah. national public radio day in, day out. I was painting a house that summer, listening to the whole thing. I mean, there are there are events sometimes coming from even the U.S. Senate that can be ideologically very destabilizing and and educational. Yeah, it can happen. I mean, this you know, was not day, one of them, and it's not going to be one of them. At the end of the day, senators, you know, support the the you know the the deep state, so to speak. But they also, you know, what they don't like to be lied to. <laughs> that really pisses them off. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think we'll have such a rift, uh, you know, uh, in in our. Uh, on the political scene today, juridic, judicial, you know, legislative scene today. So let's see what happens. We'll have you back on the show very soon to kind of talk about an autopsy of the autopsy. Everybody check out that book. It's coming out this summer. Christian Parenti, always a pleasure. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you.